Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, the fuck it, I quit episode of our weekly podcast guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. You might have seen the Alaska TV reporter saying those very words as she revealed that she was the owner of a marijuana business, but... This week, there's an even more important person who basically (laughs) said exactly the same thing. I'm Felix Salmon, a fusion in New York. And as you can hear, we have the instantly recognizable voice of Kai Rizdahl in Los Angeles is joining us as an extremely special guest this week in the sad absence of Kathy O'Neill. We also, of course, have Slate's very own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Good to be here as always. This week we will of course talk about the fall of the Bond King Mm -hmm. the Friday morning announcement that Bill Gross, the legendary Bill Gross is resigning from PIMCO the fund that he founded and which made him a multi-billionaire We'll also talk about Yahoo and its stock price and its valuation. Can a company be worth minus $8 billion? And we'll also talk about uh, another set of mystery values, other people's salaries, and what happens if you dispel the mystery around how much people earn. And, of course, we'll have a numbers lightning round at the end. But we're going to start with the huge news of the week from Friday morning. Kai, what happened over in Southern California where you are? That's exactly it. It comes out of Newport Beach, California. Bill Gross, the head of PIMCO, the company, as you said, that he started uh, 40-something years ago, um, has said... 
to quote you and that lady up in Alaska, fuck it, I quit. He is done. He's out of here. He is going and starting on Monday, in fact, at Janus Capital. This is a big, big deal. He's not taking much time off. No, and well, and we can talk about this later, but what about non-compete clauses? Hello? Do they not exist up in the upper stratosphere of finance? You know? Well, evidently, if you're the founder of the company, oh, get, you yeah, get right? whatever clause yeah. you want. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, I, I imagine he was negotiating that contract pretty much with himself at yeah. that point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Although the reason, I mean, the general accepted reason why he has done this seemingly crazy thing, and he's 70 years old, right, that's a bit, right. you know, and he's, he's worth $2.5 billion. None of this makes much sense on its face. Janus has, get this, a 31 billion dollars yeah. of bonds under management. And so let's well um, let's put that in context, right? Bill's yeah. fund at Pimco is 222 billion dollars. So this is a big step down And for Pimco him. itself is 2 trillion. 2 trillion, exactly. But here's the the nut graph on this whole thing. Apparently reports Friday morning from both Allianz which owns Pimco and Pimco itself are that he was getting out just before he was going to be shown the door anyway. Well, they would say that. Of, of they? course they would. However, comma, it is known and has been known for some time that PIMCO is not a pleasant place to work in large part because of Mr. Gross and the way he handles things. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was that profile of him a number of months ago in which... The great Greg Zuckerman in the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. Right. In which, uh, among many other tidbits, basically you're not allowed to talk to him during the day. If you want to interact with him, you have to hand him a piece of paper. You have to like hand him notes and stuff. He hates people looking him in the eye. Right. He insists I mean, that everyone in the office is in the office at like half past four in the morning. It's a poisonous atmosphere. Right. No one enjoys working there. I have spent quite a lot of time talking to quite a lot of people at PIMCO and my former Reuters colleague Jenna Blan has basically made an entire career out of talking to people at PIMCO. And the one thing which everyone is unanimous about is, is, is that it is not a pleasant place to work. So the I, I want to raise a question though. Even if he turned Pimco into a, a snake pit, whatever, would this be happening if he hadn't made several consecutive disastrous bets on Treasury right. bonds over the past right. few years? I mean, I think that's what's underlying all this. Wait, wait, wait what, well, let's try and work out what's happening first. Okay. Because first of all, we have to remember that earlier this year, the CEO mm-hmm. of Pimco, Mohamed right. Alarian, quit over what, by all accounts, was just a massive personality clash yep. with, with Bill Gross. That he was nominally in charge, he was nominally the CEO, but in fact, everyone knew it was Bill's company, Bill was in charge, and that you had this clash after clash, and then, um, you know, eventually, Mohammed Alarian just quit. And, um, and now that means that the two people who are most associated with the firm in the public's eye have both left the company, which has, as we, you know, outflows notwithstanding, it still has $2 trillion of assets under management. It is mind-bogglingly enormous company. Right. But I will bet you that nobody who's not in the world of finance and bonds can name anybody else who works at that company. I mean, this these two guys, Alarian and Bill Gross, were the firm. And now what happens? I saw a great tweet this morning. PIMCO is going to be run by surfers out in Newport Beach asking Siri what bonds to buy. <laughs> you know? I mean, would that get much worse results than the last well, few well, although, <laughs> all right. <laughs> although this is, I mean, okay, so first of all, let's just make it clear to our, our yeah. listeners here who, you know, might just be scratching their heads and saying, what on earth are you talking about, PIMCO who? Yeah. That there are basically two massive great markets you can invest your money in. One is stocks and one is bonds. 
Everyone knows what the stock market is. If you listen to Kai's wonderful show every <laughs> day, he will tell you whether the stock market went up and whether the stock market went down. And it's this big thing. It's this barometer of the country and everyone cares about it. And then there's the bond market, which is actually much bigger right. and actually much more important. Mm-hmm. And everybody yep. just generally ignores. But that's where you make the real money. Yeah. And there's one person who has dominated the bond market for the past 30 or 40 years, and that is Bill Gross. There's been this huge, long-term, 30-year bull market in bonds. Bill Gross was in there in the beginning. He was bullish from the beginning, and he made billions of dollars for himself and his investors. During the, the housing bubble, he made a spectacular call. The story is that he had he made the decision to, well, during a, a yoga lesson, I believe, oh, he decided to send out some of his employees just to start looking at all of these housing developments and seeing what was actually being built, which, as we know, is something that a lot of investors did not bother doing. And he realized it was probably good to get away from these mortgage securities. That mm. These were not something you want, that these were toxic. So, I mean, he has made some, uh, he has made the right call where other people, up until recently, he's made a series of brilliant calls where other people were making the wrong call. Um, so it, it's it, it, he is it's by, a mammoth By figure. general consensus, the greatest bond investor of all time. But hold on a minute, because he, he is an interesting guy in a lot of ways, right? We've talked about his management style. We've talked about the fact that he makes people a gazillion dollars. But when you get him, in my case, on the radio, he's a lousy interview. He's kind of a squirrely little dude. And, and I wonder, I mean, he really is, right? And I wonder what people um, uh, think when they look at him talk about the bond market. He's known, and I think he's much more interesting in writing, actually. He is known for for uh, his his outlook that he gives on the bond market, and he, he writes a newsletter. And it's a great, fun thing to read. And I wonder how he... And his personality translates to investors and the people out there, you know, the people who, who look at him. Well, I mean, one of the things is that he's a very idiosyncratic yeah. individual. He got bought by a very large and very boring German mega-national, international conglomerate called Allianz. Um, in Over the past couple of years, there have been serious tensions between Allianz and PIMCO in general and Bill Gross in particular – the, there are tensions between him and the board of PIMCO, and he has found himself running not only a $221 billion fund of his own, which is probably too big to run, but also a $2 trillion PIMCO mm-hmm. portfolio overall, which is definitely too big to run. And I can just imagine that the reason he's made this choice is partly as a fuck it, I quit, you know, message to Allianz, to his bosses, mm-hmm. saying, I've, I, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. But it's also uh, him telling the world, I still have it, and if you give me a small enough amount of money that I don't move markets every time I twitch a toenail, then I will actually go out there and start making real mm-hmm. returns again. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to hear your guys' opinions about what may have gone wrong for him in the past few years. Is it just anybody's luck is going to run out yeah. eventually or is it and for listeners who, who don't necessarily track exactly what happened bill gross has made a series of, like i said very bad bets against the treasury market um in 2011 he i believe it was 11 he just literally cleared his fund of treasuries he just divested them he said these are a sucker bet and then of course there was a massive rally in the market and he lost out a lot and then later on he bet on inflation uh protected treasury mm-hmm. bonds essentially you're betting inflation is going to come what happened inflation did not come. So 
I'm wondering, is the his streak, of, is it just bad luck? Is it a sign that anyone is going to succumb to this eventually? Is it a sign of just how hard it was to figure out what was going on in with monetary policy and the economy in the last couple of years? I mean, what what is there any lesson that can be taken from him? So two things. I think he was incredibly smart and good and lucky for a long, long time. And then things fundamentally changed. And his edge, whatever it was, right? And you have to realize that, that his marginal edge over the next guy was probably not that great. His edge went away in this atmosphere that was completely changed. I think you're absolutely right, Kai. And frankly, he he was and probably still is an amazing bull market investor. And there are investors who can consistently outperform mm. in a 30-year-long secular bull market, but maybe those skills don't lend themselves to consistently outperforming mm-hmm. in weird mm-hmm. central bank-driven markets like this one. Or maybe he's you know, 70 years old and just doesn't really have it anymore. Yep. That could be it. Yep. <laughs> I mean, right? Come on. It's tough when you, when you get older. Uh, but enough of insidery bond market stuff, All because right. although it's fascinating to me and reasonably fascinating to Kai, the rest of the world has finite <laughs> appetite. I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, there's, we, we will go back to the comfortable world of stocks, which everyone knows about, but which even fewer people actually understand. And Exhibit A in, in the way that stocks make no sense is Yahoo!, the stock market is an inherently nonsensical thing compared to the bond yes. market. The bond market is we have these instruments. They will pay you a coupon. You will buy that instrument, and it's all predictable. Stocks, things just go around all over the place. And what we have in the case of Yahoo right now is a company which owns a bunch of shares in Alibaba. We've talked about Alibaba on this show in the past. It's a massive Chinese company. It's now listed on the stock exchange. It has a certain value. And it has about $10 billion of cash, thanks in large part to the fact that it was forced to sell a lot of its shares in Alibaba. And if you add up the value of its stake in Alibaba and its cash, that's actually more right there than the value of Yahoo itself. So as Matt Levine wonderfully explained on Bluebird View, Alibaba could just buy Yahoo for stock and cash and then acquire exactly the same amount of stock and cash and get Yahoo essentially for free. That Yahoo, as a going concern, X its Alibaba stake and its cash, is worth negative $8 billion. So, Kai, does, is this just proof of my general feeling that we should ignore the stock market and the stock market makes no sense. You know, I actually agree with you that the stock market makes no sense and capitalism is a wonderful thing. I think it's fascinating when you actually do the line-by-line math and you subtract out the 24% of Alibaba that Yahoo owned and the 40% of, of Yahoo Japan that, that Yahoo owned and and you come down with this, this number that says the core business at Yahoo is worth negative $10 billion. Here's the part I don't understand and I want you guys to explain to me. They had $4.6 billion in revenue last Last year, right? They're driving mm-hmm. all this stuff, right? How is it possible that Yahoo is worth a negative amount of money? Well, part uh, so part of that is uh, just an enormous amount of revenue, or at least their income comes from Yahoo Japan. Yeah. Um, so their their core U.S. business is um, just a fraction yeah. of their earnings, essentially a very tiny fraction. And I think a lot of it is just. Uh, looking forward. I mean, Yahoo is nominally a tech company. Yeah, they, they don't even know, though, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, they had the choice. When they chose yeah. a new CEO, yeah. and, and Dan Loeb came on the board and helped to choose a new CEO, they had the choice. They could, they could have hired Scott Thompson, who had a very clear plan to fire most of the people at Yahoo and make it a relatively small, lean tech company, or conversely, to hire Marissa Meyer from Google, 
and and turn it into a media powerhouse. And they chose the latter course. They've chosen to stay a media company. And we're talking about a company not named Facebook <laughs> that gets right. 38% of its uh, revenue from display ads. And you, if you're not, a, you know, they're essentially in the same business as in a lot of ways, is Slate or The Atlantic or a lot of other uh, companies that you know Wall Street doesn't really want to be throwing its money at necessarily. It's a vicious, vicious market to try and sell advertising next to journalism, which is basically what they're doing in a lot of respects. They're trying to move up market um, essentially by expanding more into video because there is money to be made in video. That you know, with Katie Couric and whatnot, they're almost trying to become like a broadcast network for the internet. Oh god, yeah, I forgot about Katie Couric, right? It says something. And, and there's a logic there because right now the CPMs on a, on a video are actually almost equivalent to what you make in TV advertising. But who, who knows how they're going to make this transition? I mean, okay, just... so so there you have the Jordan Weissman stock <laughs> analyst, buy side <laughs> analyst. I'm going to tell you where the money is coming from and talk about things like CPMs. Whereas my point of view is, is basically, I think, closer to yours, which is sometimes the stock market doesn't make sense. It's stupid, right? And we saw this during the dot-com boom as well. I, I remember vividly when there was this rather boring tech company called 3Com, mm-hmm. which spun off a super sexy, you know, proto-iPhone thing called the Palm Pilot. And, they, and so, that, so they spun off this company called Palm. And they hmm. owned 80% hmm. of Palm, but Palm was worth more than 3Com. Right. A lot more than 3Com. Uh, And so sometimes you just have these things which don't make sense. And, you know, occasionally you'll have hedge funds try and do the arbitrage. And then sometimes when they try and do the arbitrage, they get their throats ripped out. You know, so we had a very similar situation with Porsche and Volkswagen where, you know, Porsche wound up being worth, you know, 20 times more than Volkswagen, which is much, much bigger because of all of this bizarre financial engineering which was going on. And so I think whenever we have these conversations, what we're doing is we're internalizing the efficient market hypothesis. We're saying markets are efficient. This has got to make sense. So let's try to reverse engineer some kind of a reason right, why this would right, make sense. Right, right, but I don't right. think that markets are efficient. Right. And I think the easy thing to say is, well, it just doesn't make sense. Absol- I think that is so spot on. I can't even tell you. That is absolutely what's going on here, that the markets are stupid. Let me ask, though, a strategic question, <laughs> right? You have Marissa Meyer, relatively newly installed CEO of a ginormous company who now has a windfall in the billions of dollars. She has more cash almost literally than she knows what to do with. If she screws this up, does somebody come in and buy Yahoo? Well, as as Matt Levine says, the obvious acquirer is Alibaba. Right. Because Alibaba is the only company which can buy Yahoo and not have to pay tax on the Alibaba shares. It can just cancel the Alibaba shares. Yeah, do, do, do you think a tax bill is going to decide whether somebody makes a play for Yahoo? We're living in the world of corporate inversions, Kai. It's all, yeah, I it's guess. A, it, we're in yeah, the, I guess. It's a good question. And if there was someone out there who could afford it and who wanted it, I'm sure they would be sort of licking their lips. But Microsoft tried at one point and then... Yahoo told them to go take G- a Yeah, hike. Jerry Yang told them to go pound sand, yeah. And, um, and I, I think, <laughs> I think yeah, Microsoft feels like they dodged a bullet on that one. So I think yeah. everyone else is thinking, why on earth would I want to inherit this? Hmm. But anyway, um, Jordan, 
Let's move on yes. to your new favorite subject, which is <laughs> how much does Kai Rizdal get paid? There you go. Uh, we're talking about this partly because I wrote an article about this week. But we have all sort of internalized, or most people internalize the idea that, that sal- your salary is a private thing. It's one of the last things we all mm. keep private. And beyond that, companies love it when you keep your salary private for all sorts of reasons. For one thing, it makes it harder for anybody to complain about being underpaid when no one knows what the guy in the cubicle next to them is making. However, there are a small number of companies, most notably Whole Foods, that have started, and they've been doing it since the 80s, have started making it possible for all their employees to look up what all of their colleagues make. Uh, it's, you know, doing the full kimono. <laughs> it's full salary mm. transparency. And, and, and it's not just, I mean, the yeah. biggest of them all, of course, is the federal government. The federal government yeah. has a lot of transparency. A lot of state governments make it possible for anyone in the state to go or have, you know, databases that people can go and look up. It's really easy to find out what anybody in Florida makes. But the question I'm wondering, and and Kai, you can probably speak to this, is what is the psychological effect of well, working in a place where people know what you right. make? Right. So let's put this in context, right? If you know where mm-hmm. to look, uh, you can find out how much I make by virtue of my position within a nonprofit company, right? So let's lay that out on the table. If you want to get creative, you can go find out my salary. Now, the problem with me addressing this is that I'm the only one at Marketplace for whom everybody knows my salary. I don't know anybody else's salary. So my kimono is wide open and nobody else's kimono <laughs> is open and I'm standing here naked, well, baby. Well, we know that no one at your company earns much more than you do. Because that is it's, correct, the, right. it's only the highest paid right. people whose, right. whose salaries get revealed. Right. But that, you're absolutely right, is it's a problem. And, but, and answer me this, Kai, because this is part of what I wrote about this. Um, how many employees do you have? There are plus or minus 50 people at, at my division of American public media, which is called Marketplace. And do they report to you? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Exactly. This is part of why I think that what your situation is is, is actually um, a sign that your company is doing something right, is that what you want is not for the highest paid people necessarily to be the most senior people on the org chart, but just the people who do their jobs the best. Oh, that's an... Yeah, okay. And, yep. and, and that you judge a manager in many ways by what is the ratio between her salary and her highest paid subordinate right, salary. Right, right. And if the highest paid subordinate makes more than her, that's a good sign normally. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. To, to Jordan's point about knowing what the, the person in the cubicle next to you makes, I can find out what my peers in public broadcasting make. You know, my, people who are at my level of their respective organizations because they are on that tax form that we all have to disclose. You know, it's interesting. And I do wonder what it would be like around here because we have, you know, we go round and round as all organizations do. We go round and round with people thinking they don't make enough money and they worry about salaries and contracts and all this stuff and benefits and how that all rolls in there. And it's absolutely something that even small organizations talk about, you know. And and my point is very much that the way that it happens in nonprofits where the top earners salaries are public but no one else's is is not good. Hmm. Um, the way it happens at places like the government and Whole Foods is better because then everyone's salary is open. Right. And what that does is it prevents people from being able to blackmail their bosses and say, I'm going to 
leave unless you give me a raise. You know, the- no, you're absolutely right. And, and that's part of it. And this is what you wrote in that piece you wrote in Vox, right? There are two things going on here. One is it equals out the male-female imbalance, right? Because females generally tend not to ask for appropriate salary levels when they're in negotiations, and men always do. But also, this is kind of a form of price discovery, right? Because what you have in companies where salaries are not known is that the only way to set that appropriate salary level is to find out what you could conceivably make somewhere else, and then your current boss comes back and offers you a smidge more, and then you have, and I'm not using this term right, but it's price discovery in a way. It absolutely is. And what you don't want is your employees constantly having to go out and essentially apply for jobs in other places just in order to to get paid what they're worth. Absolutely. You know, while while I was working on my piece this week, I I was kind of going through the the academic literature on the subject. It's it's not not exactly vast, but there have been studies over time. And and one thing that people have kind of concluded is that we, you know, human beings don't like uncertainty. We, we like knowing as much as we can about a situation. And so when you're in a place with secret salaries, chances are you're going to start just guessing what people make, what everyone makes around mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. The problem is that most of us are really bad at guessing these things. And so there's research showing, for instance, that managers will overestimate what everyone below them makes. So they think their underling like, makes almost their salary. And then they underestimate what all their superiors make. So they don't think there's much for, like, for them to gain by getting a promotion. So you kind of assume the worst of all possible worlds. You right. just, and that's one of the reasons why there might be something to this idea that if you just kind of you, you know, allow some sunshine in and let everyone know what everybody makes, that could lead to a healthier office environment. And more modern studies have come to some, some mixed conclusions about this. But I definitely think there are virtues. And it would be nice in a way if it caught on at more places. And speaking of someone who who used to work at a union shop where salaries are much more predictable and constrained, it does genuinely remove a large part of the tension which you find in most offices. You know, no one's that jealous about what other people are making if everyone's in the union and more or less on the same contract and earning more or less the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. But Hmm. enough of salaries. Let's move on to different numbers. Jordan. What's your number this week? So my number is 91, and I'm going to give you the headline I used with it uh, earlier this week. But 91 is what tells us that there are not enough marriageable men in the United States of America. And so here's what the statistic is exactly. For every 100 never married women between the ages of 25 and 34 in the United States, there are 91 men that age who have never been married and have a job. And this is the big problem is that there's this huge mismatch between the number of women who are looking for a, a husband with a with steady employment and the number of men who can actually provide that. And so we have this ongoing debate about the decline of marriage in America and what's causing it. And is it social? Is it economic? And this is one of the clearest illustrations uh, to me that, yes, there's a huge economic component here. And without solving uh, the problem of uh, financially strapped young undereducated men, you're not going to save marriage. Yep. My number is, with apologies to Kai here, what? is 46, Yeah, which is the number of hours of tape that a woman oh, yeah, called yeah, Carmen yeah. Segarra, yeah. a former New York Fed bank examiner, secretly recorded within the hallowed halls of Goldman Sachs and then turned over to Jake Bernstein of This American Life. And I don't know, I'm assuming that many, if not most, of the listeners of Slate Money also mm-hmm. subscribe to... This American Life. If you don't, I can highly recommend that this week's episode in particular that you download and listen to it because it is an astonishing 
eye-opening look into the degree to which the New York Fed, even after the financial crisis, even after the venality of the biggest banks had been exposed for all the world to see, remains completely captured by the institutions which it is ostensibly supervising. This is secret recordings. It's everything you ever wanted from investigative journalism, and it's, it's a great piece. Yeah, it totally is. Those tapes are amazing. All right. I have uh, actually two numbers, but they're interrelated. The first one is 12, and the second one as of Friday is uh, $92.75. $92.75 is the price of a barrel of oil Friday in New York. 12 is the number of modular refineries that were blown up in Syria on Thursday by Allied airstrikes. And I mention this for two reasons. One, you have got to go look at the Vice videos of some of these modular refineries and what these guys are doing from ISIS out in the desert to refine oil and sell it on the market. It is mind-boggling. It is, it is, Rube Goldberg does not do it justice. Um, uh, no, truly. I mean, it's, it's absolutely bananas. Uh, so there's no there's no market for the crude, and so what they're doing is they're refining they're, it themselves yeah. in these crazy homemade contraptions, and then and then selling the the gasoline. It, that's exactly it, and it's crazy. I mean, they dig trenches in the sand. And, I mean, you you have to see it to believe it. Anyway, the twelve and the ninety two seventy five are related in this regard. I want to know how it is, and this is maybe another podcast that we can be blowing things up in the Middle East that uh, Israel and Gaza are are simmering as always. And yet uh, oil is below $100 and um, everything's fine. I think this is a subject for another podcast, but I think um, my, my super, super shorthand for that is, among other things, uh, North Dakota. Yeah, supply, right. No, I, it's just, it's amazing. <laughs> it's remarkable. Anyway, there you go. On, on which note, Kai Rizdal, thank you very, very much for coming on and standing in for Kathy O'Neill. Do you have a tour you want to plug? You know what, Felix? I do have a tour I want to plug. Thank you for <laughs> mentioning you that. We are going to be in New York City. Marketplace is on the 16th of October. It's a road show we came up with called How We Learn to Stop Worrying and Love the Numbers, 92nd Street Y. Tickets are on the Marketplace website, the 92nd Street Y website, um, and it's radio on stage. Come see us. It should be exciting. I might even be there myself. In any case, that's it for us this week. Thanks very much for listening to Slate Money. Uh, and if you like the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And leave a review if you like it. Or even if you don't. But really, if you like it, do. Uh, <laughs> and write to us. Continue to write to us. We didn't get to any letters this week, but we love your letters. Um, your comments, your complaints, your requests. Slate Money at slate.com. Our producer for Slate Money this week was Stan Alcorn, and the executive producers for Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kai Rizdahl and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.